Welcome to the sixth episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Mark Lucero, an ATP and WTA traveling tour coach and host of the Check the Mark podcast. He was an assistant coach at Princeton University, spent time working for the USTA in Carson, California, has coached Shelby Rogers and Jeannie Bouchard, and is currently coaching one of the top American men on tour, Steve Johnson. On today's episode, we talk about how he comes up with a game plan for his players, what the relationship is like between a pro player and coach, and what pro tactics you can implement into your own game. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Mark, welcome to the pod. Hey, dude. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. You are in Acapulco right now. You just flew there from Delray, and you're with Stevie Johnson, who's probably the most decorated collegiate player of all time, certainly on the men's side, and a former top 25 player. He's got a qualifying match tomorrow, and I've heard you speak before about using video and, and coming up with a game plan. I don't need you to tell us what his game plan will be for tomorrow, but I wonder if you can kind of walk us through that process and what that looks like. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like early in my career, one of the things I didn't understand in a real deep way was giving a player a game plan that they were capable or equipped to execute. A lot of times, I think with young coaches, and I know I was really guilty of it, I saw the game through my own eyes and with my own skill set and how I would play a certain player. And a lot of times, I, that's what I would deliver to some of the players I worked with early in the career. And then over time, you know, I, I just started to see, or I started to be able to maybe put myself in the player's shoes and, and figure out how could they could best sort of use their own skill set or attributes against a certain player. And, and one of the things that came out of that was always trying to put it in terms of what this player does well versus countering what the other player was going to do. Because a lot of times players, you know, they're, they're so literal that they will often put aside their plan A and go, go to B right away, which they end up doing things that, you know, they're not as well equipped to do, or they're not maybe as confident doing versus like, man, I'm going to go, you know, do it like for Steve, I'm going to use my backhand slice. I'm going to try to hit my forehand with shape. You know, I'm going to serve to this spot or whatever, because this is a ball I like to, you know, ball I like to hit and a ball I like to receive off that serve, you know, allows me to use my weapon. So, you know, it, basically it's using the video, looking at some of the stats, looking at some of the reports that I'm going to look at later. And then, you know, basically reviewing what we learned from the last time that these guys played and trying to put my player in a position to use his strengths as much as possible and to make the other player as uncomfortable as possible. And in a match like what we're going to have tomorrow, where it's a rematch of someone that he played, you know, just a few days ago, a big part of that is going to be mindset related. Maybe, you know, a few tactical adjustments, but the big part is going to be about the mindset about having a short memory, like almost like a, like a cornerback in football, you know, if someone throws your way and, and you try to break on the ball and you get beat, you know, guess what? They're going to go at you again, probably the next drive. And you need to have a short memory and you need to figure out, okay, this is the one that matters. You know, the one I'm going to do now, the play that's coming up, this is the most important play and I need to get my mind right. Otherwise, you know, I don't want that one ball that beat me or that one match that beat me before to turn into a couple matches. You know, we can't have that sort of hangover effect. So that's going to be a big part of it is how I present that material to the player and how I sort of build up to that for the player. Would you say you kind of create a game plan and then you would present it to your player or is it a little bit more of a collaborative process where you guys both kind of talk through it and go, hey, this is how I'm feeling as a player. 
this is who we have coming up and you, you kind of generate one together or are you kind of coming up with that on your own? I think it's a mix. A lot of times, especially with a player who, I guess with all kinds of players, I was going to say with a player who's a veteran like Steve that I work with, a lot of times he'll even lead, he'll bring it up first. He'll lead with what he thinks then he'll ask me. And then that allows me to get in. Sometimes with a younger player, I might ask them what they think first and, and again, put them in a position where they're leading. And then I will, you know, kind of jump in and try to guide the thinking that I see, you know, that I see fit. But again, in this kind of matchup that, you know, that, that we're thinking about tomorrow, it's going to be a big part, you know, mindset related, you know, how to approach it, how to, you know, bounce back if, if things aren't going your way and just, you know, how to, how to think as you walk on the court. Can you think back, you've been, you've been coaching on tour for a while now, um, men's and women's players, but is there a specific match that stands out where you can kind of look back with pride and go, you know what game plan was the difference in that one? You know, it's funny. Um, I think to a lot of, I actually, the first matches that come to mind are, are often losses where I felt the game plan was right and it maybe wasn't executed or maybe there wasn't enough time to get to where it works because a lot of times you can give a player a game plan and especially if they're playing someone who is you know better than them who's a higher ranked player a lot of times those tactics won't work until 30 or 40 or 50 minutes in like when it's 4-4 on the scoreboard and player you know that player that seed is serving at 30 all you know that's when shots are going to break down or that's when that pattern that they're not quite comfortable with is going to work. Like, you know, if you're playing, you know, if you're playing a Halep at one, one in the first set, she's going to hit her forehand. Great at five, six in the first set. And you go heavy, you know, I'm thinking about Shelby. If Shelby goes heavy to Halep's forehand, that's the ball. It's not going to get cross court enough. And, and that your player is going to need, you know, Shelby will need, or whoever would need to step up in the middle of the court and crack that backhand with authority, taking the ball on the rise where you need to be brave, you know, or that's the forehand that Halep might, you know, flag wide, you know, just as one example. So that's kind of one of the things that the players sort of need to be aware of or, or even trust in the plan long enough to see it work. And then if you know, then when you get that scoreboard pressure and when you have it work a few times, it places the doubt in the opponent's mind. And that's when you see sort of usually things start to snowball from there. But, you know, I've seen players go away from the plan, like early first set, mid first set, oh, like it wasn't working or, you know, maybe the plan was required more discipline than they were able to have that day sort of their their gas tank of discipline was only half full they didn't have like a full you know load for whatever reason and and that happens and that leads to you know other discussions after the match about you know how to get there mentally or how to you know how to do it better next time i'm sure pros are a little more mature emotionally and they've been there and done that and if you give your player a tactic and it's going to work it might only work 55 percent of the time right? Like that'd still be a good pattern. Hey, we're in a pattern that I'm winning 55 out of a hundred. Do you have to be very clear with your player about, Hey, you know what, if we attack Halep's forehand, it's going to break down, but guess what? She's still Halep. Her forehand's not horrendous. So she's going to win points against you. And that doesn't mean your game plan's not working or you're not doing it incorrectly. Do you, do you have to do that with your players still? Um, sometimes, but usually they can see it. Usually, usually they can see it. I, I think there's often times where Maybe they think they're doing it right, but you know, say that ball's landing on the service line instead of three or four feet away from the baseline. That's a completely different shot for the other player to handle. And even if that's 
you know, the player's weaker side where their deficit is, if the ball's on the service line, they're still going to hit it well, and they're probably going to hurt you. I remember, the, you know, the first time I saw Hallett play, just because we're using her as an example, I couldn't believe how big I thought she was hitting her forehand and how early she was taking it. But then you go back and watch the tape, you see where the balls were landing. There's a reason that she looked that good. And then when you watch, you know, the next time that, you know, that, that Shelby had played her, which was in Australia, and the depth was different, situation was different. And you know, all of a sudden you're seeing something that's exploited that you hadn't seen the previous time they played. But to answer your question, usually the players are pretty perceptive, but then sometimes you'll see some <laughs> matches where you'll see a tactic work and then you'll see it disappear for an hour. Like what just happened, <laughs> you know, but that again is sort of a window into what the player might be going through in their mind where they didn't even see that that tactic worked because usually if they're in the right place, they're going to have that awareness and they will use that tactic. But if for some reason they didn't see it, then that again leads to some sort of teachable moment after the match, which I think is when the good stuff happens. Is there, what, what is the dynamic between a pro player and a coach? So in this instance, Shelby or Steve, they're employing you, right? So you are hired by them to help them reach their goals what is that relationship like and how does that go throughout a season? Yeah, it's it's really complicated because they are they are your employer, but you're the one who's telling them what to do a lot of times. They are somebody who I mean they're your companion because you're probably going to breakfast with them, you're for sure going to lunch with them and you usually go into dinner with them. And you end up you end up getting really close because you go through a lot of very emotional or emotionally charged events with them. You go through some very, very low lows or, or what seem like low lows. You go through some, hopefully you go through some really high highs and all this sort of emotional, you know, this emotional journey you go on, you know, like anything in life, it, it creates this closeness and this relationship with another human being that is, you know, is really unlike anything. And it's unlike a lot of workplaces. It's, it's probably as close as you can get to a, you know, as a, as a, almost a romantic relationship aside from the romance, but everything you go through together is so emotionally charged and, and so turbulent. Uh, you know, it, it just creates this very difficult dynamic when you have to put that aside and really talk about stuff that's really serious, which can be, the status of your working relationship, you know, some, sometimes it's, it's monetary or financial, or sometimes it's really calling, you know, a person out when you need to call them out. And that a lot of times because of the close relationship that can become emotionally charged as well. And it gets, you know, very, it gets very difficult sometimes. So I want to switch gears a little bit. It'd be a shame to have you on and not talk a ton of tactics and kind of pick your brain on, on what you know, but You've coached Stevie, uh, Jeannie Bouchard. We've been talking about Shelby. You've coached Nicole Gibbs. So plenty of pro men and women's players. What are the two to three big differences that you see between you know the men's game and the women's game? Yeah, number one is the physicality, the movement, and the fact that when you get the ball going outside the sideline, like on the women's side, you're usually in a great spot. If you get the ball going outside the line with whether it's your inside out or your back and cross or whatever it's a forehand cross. If you get the player into the alley or beyond the alley, you're in a great spot if with the men. If you get that ball going, if you open up the court in that way, a lot of guys can hurt you from those parts of the court. 
if you haven't really earned that shot. So that, that number one, like, like the defense and the fact that, you know, guys can hurt you from outside the alley. That, that's really, that's really the biggest difference. I think there's other things like maybe some of the awareness, like, you know, serving to certain spots, like the kick serve wide on the guy side. If you haven't set it up well as a first serve, you can get hurt with the kick, you know, with the kick wide, if it's not sort of well-timed or well hit, you know, on the women's side, if you have a good kick serve, you can use that as a first serve all day long and you're going to get balls. To, you're going to get either errors or balls to hit. For both uh, both genders, the slice is, is so critical. Being able to hit a good slice, a lot of players, in, you know, in both tours, don't like to hit it. And you know, I think a lot of times you talk about people will talk about tactics that, you know, men's tactics versus women's tactics, and you know, which ones are better. Like I just, again, I try to see it through the skill set that my player has and, and what tools they have, what patterns put them in good positions to win. And you know, I, I try not to identify it, I guess, as, as men's, you know, men's or women's. That being, you know, that being said, I do see like a lot of, there are patterns, I think from women's tennis that you'll see guys start to do like a lot of times, you know, you talk about one thing that it's, that I hear a lot is how maybe the women's tour might be one generation behind the men's as far as tactics. And, and you see, you know, in recent years a bunch more women like a Madison Keys, a Sloan Stevens, you know, I can think of more players too, maybe like a Sabalenka that will play with more tactics that you used to see only on the men's side. Again, the kick wide, you know, that are forehand dominant, establishing the inside out forehand that are playing a little bit more like that. And I think, you know, as time goes on, you'll continue to see some of these tactics sort of adopted at the same time. I think we're starting to see a lot more tactics. Well, maybe one specific tactic that was very prevalent on the women's side, not as prevalent on the men's side that's starting to be used. I think about Novak, Medvedev, these guys that are using the backhand down the line a lot as like, I call it the backhand line the great equalizer because you know, because men's tennis so long was dominated by, you know, guys who want to sit in the forehand corner and establish the inside out early. But now if you, you know, that's the best thing that Novak has done to become, you know, probably the goat was being able to hit that backhand up the line and force guys to honor the whole court. And as soon as they have to do that, you know, his backhand cross court is better. His forehand inside out is better because the guy's now stuck at the center hash versus playing a little bit off center. Is there anything along those lines that's probably maybe a little too advanced, but is there anything that you see out there that is applicable to a junior player or an amateur adult where you can say, look at what the pros are doing, look at this pattern, and this is something that you could actually apply to your own game? Yeah, two things for sure. One is playing inside out before inside in. I think when you watch kids play, they go to the inside in way too often, and that's something where if you go inside in, a lot of things can happen and most of them are bad with kids. They, you know, a lot of times they move their head. So they yank the ball wide or they try to get the extra power. Um, so they yank wide, you go inside in too early. You're exposed with a easy forehand cross court. And then, you know, there's the chance to hit a winner or whatever, you know, the other one, I guess the net's high. So there's four things that can happen. Three of them are bad net error, wide error, or the other players got an easy cross court. And then there's the one good outcome, which is you hit a winner or, you know, you hit a forced error. So that's, you know, one of the things, if you watch pro tennis, you'll see the good players constantly establish the inside out to set up the inside in. Um, the second one is being comfortable slicing, learning how to slice early, because it's really hard to learn that later. And it's really hard if you learn it later to use it when it really matters in a big match. Like you need to have, you need to own a stroke before me as a coach or you as a coach tell somebody, hey, you know, whatever, you're in the finals of the bullfrog or you're in the finals of 18s nationals. So, Hey, 
use a slice today. And, and all of a sudden, you know, this guy like only started working on it, or girl only started working on their slice, you know, a year ago, like it's going to be a tough shot for them to do. Like at some point they're going to be able to try it. But if you learn it early, you know, they can start to hit, you know, they hit the slice with confidence or even learn how to do it, learn how to hit the slice cross, learn how to hit the short slice line. And just to have that sort of tool in their toolbox, I think that's really important early. So let's take a step back and talk a little bit about your coaching background. You were the assistant at Princeton for a couple of years. You spent time at the USDA in Carson. Um, and then, like I said, you've been on the tour for, for quite a while. Who are the, the main coaching influences that, that you've had that have kind of shaped who you are and, and what you're about as a coach? I feel really fortunate, you know, to have been around some great coaches. You know, my, my first job was at Princeton with with Kathy Sell, which was incredible. And I look back, <laughs> I look back on those days and kind of just laugh because, it, you know, the two of us were kind of thrown in the deep end and it, it was really fun and it was really illuminating. But when I got to the USTA, I was like in this, it felt like I was in this supercharged like master's program for tennis because every day I got to be around, you know, coaches like like Jose Higueras, like Tom Gullickson, you know, David Raditi, like a Ray Ruffles you know, Laurie McNeil, and, and to this day, like a David Nankin, who's still at the USTA and Carson. Um, so I got to be around people like that and talk tennis and learn and watch them, watch them deal with pros, watch them deal with young kids. And, you know, I think being around, being around Jose was incredible. And I think it's one of the most misunderstood things about his philosophy or the USTA's philosophy. I think it was pretty poorly explained to a lot of people, but being that I was in LA and Carson and being able to see Jose you know, every week for, you know, a few days or, or spend time with him in the desert. I, I like what I understood was a very clear idea about what kind of players that, that he liked and his style or how he saw the game played for the most part was way more offensive than people give him credit. You know, people think he tried to turn the American players into like these pushers that were rolling the balls and playing heavy. And, and what was, what was told to us was, we want players to be able to play heavy when they were attacked and push them off the baseline, you know, let the ball, uh, you know, not fight the ball, but he wanted to play, you know, we were trying to make players who had weapons and who, when their feet were set, they were going to let it rip and that could serve in volley and could transition to the net and um, could play on all surfaces. So that was one of the things that influenced me sort of a lot, you know, with just spending time with him and also understanding his style, the way he related to players, which, uh, he was actually on Patrick McEnroe's podcast last week, which was, which was really, really good. And, and he talked a lot about having never raised his voice to players, which I saw. Like I, I saw him run practices where he got really pissed off. But by the time he would call the players in and talk to them, he would talk to them in a very normal way and convey what he wanted and then send them back out there. And eventually they would do it. And, and so he would always tell us that if we had a bad practice, it was our fault. Which was true because we, we need to figure out a way to get the players to do what we want to do, and there's a way to do it. We just have to figure it out, and it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't. Being a tough coach doesn't mean being a coach who gets pissed off or who yells. It means holding the players to high standards. If they're not doing it, maybe bring them back, change the drill, do whatever you need to do in order to get them to do it, and then usually you'll have a good practice. And, and again, a good practice doesn't mean making, you know, playing perfect tennis, but a good practice means they got better. I mean, they got better every single day. And so, you know, he was a big one. You know, David Raditi was, you know, was someone who I, and I spent a lot of time with and, and learned a lot from Tom Gullickson as well. Um, how he was able to talk tennis to pro players and, and sort of give them, equip them with plans to use their, to use their skill set. I, I guess that was probably the most influential, like to me, as far as relating to pro players. 
And then even your guest uh, on your last show, Nick Saviano, I only spent a little bit of time with him. But uh, when I was working with Jeannie Bouchard, she was working with him as well. And I, I've never been on a court who's better, you know, with a coach who's better technically than, than Nick. I, it was incredibly impressive. And, and if, you know, only a few days or whatever that I spent with him over the course of, you know, a few months, I learned so much about technique. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Tom Golickson and how he talked to players. Like, obviously, communication is such a huge part of coaching, right? Like, the the court hasn't changed the shape or the size. And let's be honest, like, okay, fine. People have been hitting big forehands and big serves forever. But how you communicate to that player is so huge. What is your communication style? I know it probably switches based on the player you have. But what is kind of the style that you use? You know, I, I try to give the players... I try to give the players some freedom. And, and so it's not going to be, I'm always on the side of more relaxed than more intense. But at the same time, I realize that sometimes the players need something different. And so sometimes I need to step out of, you know, my own comfort zone and assert myself in a way that gets the player's attention and, or, you know, maybe bring more energy than I might have, because I see that that's what the player needs in that moment. But a lot of times, especially with pros, <laughs> they're adults. And so they should be treated as such. That being said, sometimes you need to treat the pros like juniors and you need to treat the juniors like adults because sometimes the juniors need to take more ownership and the pros sometimes, you know, are acting like babies and need to be treated as such. And you need to literally tell them what to do. So you have to have kind of an awareness of the situation, like an emotional intelligence. But a lot of times, you know, for me, I want the player to understand that I'm in it with them. I want the player to believe that I believe what I say. Like when I talk about, you know, this result not mattering or whatever it is, or, you know, these wins and losses or that miss, I need to walk that walk. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm coming in talking about, you know, my expectations for a match and they go out there and do them and lose, I can't go into the locker room pissed off because they lost if they did the other two things that we talked about and, and, and vice versa. You know, over time, if I do that enough times, then they'll believe me when I say the work that we do is going to pay off over the long term, even if the short term is painful and you know, not successful or whatever. But if I don't back up what I say, then they're going to be like, well, why is the guy even saying that? Why should I believe it? And, and that was, a, you know, that's a conversation that it is important to have with the players. And it's important to understand if the player is buying in, if the player is not buying into that, then you need to figure out another way to approach them or maybe it's not working. If you could only pick one thing for a coach and you say, this is one skill that you got to have if you want to relate to players and help them improve, what do you think that most important skill would be for a coach? That's tough. I mean, I think pr probably humility. It's not about you. I think being able to put the player first, I think that's really important because you'll see a lot of, you'll see a lot of good coaches that players don't want to work with because the coach comes first or the player will feel judged by that coach. There's, there's a few different, a number of different scenarios where that's in play. I think, you know, one is one is humility. I think that's a, that's a big one. The second one is is going to be communication. So you're a typical coach, and somehow you you found a way to get two in there instead of one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, all right, so we're going to finish up with Instagram questions. Great. And you asked the people on Instagram for some softballs, and we got a few, but we also got a couple fastballs. Yeah, yeah, give it to me. I'm, yeah, I love it. I'll let you decide which one the softball is and which <laughs> one the fastballs are, but. Whose game on tour do you admire the most? Rafa. Easy. Uh, just the way the way that he fights, the way he puts himself out there each point, the way that he sees the game, at least as far as how he communicates to the media, 
the way that he sees tennis and the way he sees his opponents. It's absolutely incredible to watch. It's incredible to watch him interact with people off the court as well. So I, I just have, I know that's not the question that goes with who's game, about, but the way that he does what he does, he's got a particular skill set, the way he uses that and the way he tries to get better. I mean, I've seen him on practice courts. I saw him a few years ago at Wimbledon. He was playing at Arangi. It was late in the day. It was like a week before the tournament. There was nobody there. We, I was there still for some reason. And he was practicing with, gosh, I don't remember if he was with Moya or if he was with Francis Roy. He was with one of them and he was working on taking his backhand early down the line off like a heavy ball and eventually coming to the net. And he kept missing. He was, I mean, he was rocketing balls, but he missed like a bunch in a row in the net. And he like yelled at one point and did like a, like a, like a, like a half racket throw. And I had never seen him like react like that before. Anyway, and maybe because it was nobody around or whatever it is, but the guy is constantly adding to his game and you know, all the best players, to be honest, we've seen them all add to their games over the years, but of all of them, I mean, for whatever reason, I, I just really, I enjoy watching him succeed. I enjoy watching him practice and I enjoy watching him compete. What's the worst part of being on tour? Being away from family. That's, that's easy. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's really fun to do this at, you know, at a really high level, but at the end of the day, it's, it's tennis. And and I like working with people who want to get better, you know, pros, high school, whatever it is. Um, if you want to listen to me, (laughs) I'm happy to work with you, but the the hardest part is, is being away from family. It's, it's brutal, especially, you know, I have a I have a 16 month old and Stevie has a 13 month old and, um, the, the way that they're changing right now is, you know, the changes are incredible and it sucks being gone. Uh, what was your biggest mistake as a coach and what did you learn from it? Uh, my biggest mistake as a coach, probably there's two. <laughs> one is being, one is sort of re- like going too quickly to calling a player out versus approaching it a little differently and figuring out how to get to the same place with a different route. And that was something that, that Andres Pedroso is another guy I worked with at the USTA who you know really well. And um, that's something that he helped me with a few years ago. And it was just, you know, I, I kept coming to the same thing with the player I was coaching. I kept saying that the level of competition needed to be better. The level of intensity, you know, in the big moments needed to be better. And this player kept taking these things so hard and I couldn't figure out why. And then, I, you know, he helped me realize that I was like, twisting this knife so deeply in this player by like really pretty much attacking this player's integrity at a very deep or not you know integrity but character at a very deep level and that i need to i needed to figure out a way a different way to get that level of competition in the tough moments where we wanted it i needed to figure out a way a different way to get there because the way i was doing it was causing such a such a painful reaction it, it just wasn't working so that, that's one the second is at times not doing a good enough job taking care of my own self on tour, doing the things I need to do in order to be a good coach for someone else. So I need to do my mindfulness. I need to make sure I'm doing something active. It's, you know, yoga or gym or, you know, an Acapulco I can get in the water or whatever it is, but doing something for myself so that I was squared away and, and I could handle the sort of emotional stuff with some, with some distance. Because, you know, if, you, if I'm, you know, if I'm flustered because something happened in the match, like I'm going to be no good 
trying to deliver information or to communicate that to someone else after. I need to be, oh, okay, I feel like that. Okay, like I can detach from that and I can communicate clearly after or before because, man, a lot of times players can pick up on stuff. If you're tight or if you're worried or whatever it is, players can pick up on that. They're not stupid. And last question, uh, coaches are always trying to learn more, improve, uh, educate themselves. What's the most recent thing that you either picked up in a podcast, an article, your own experience that you've learned that you can share with the listeners? You know, I try to constantly learn. When I was with the USTA, you know, I talked about being around great coaches. And that was something for myself after I left the USTA when I was coaching sort of, you know, on my own or when I was coaching pros. I really tried to recreate that. I, I was like, how can I surround myself with a similar, you know, group of coaches or how can I surround myself with people that I can continue to learn from? Because, you know, you can learn through some experiences, but the, the best way to learn is through people directly. And, and so I tried to create that for myself and I set out to do it. Like, oh God, I was constantly bugging Peter Smith at USC. Like, you know, anytime I was in town, Hey Peter, can I come up to have lunch? Or, Hey, so, you know, uh, David Nankin, who I worked with at the USTA, I continued to like, hey, David, can I come out to practice? Can I come hang with you and the guys? You know, CB, Craig Boyton, who was coaching Stevie Johnson at the time and Sam Query at tournaments. I was always, hey, CB, what time are you guys hitting? Can I come out and, you know, hang with you on the court? Just being around coaches like that, you know, I was constantly learning stuff. And to be honest, I, I listened to your pod with, with Nick this morning. And at the end, he talked about, talked about the sacred trust when parents entrust you with their child you know, that's the sacred trust that you as a coach are taking on. And that was one of the things that was super impactful to me the first time he explained it to me, probably in 2012. And I, to be honest, I kind of forgot it. I, it was like one of those you know things that's tucked away so far back. And then when he said it in the pod instantly, I was like, that's something I need to keep, you know, in mind at all times, because it is just incredible. The fact that like a parent is going to take their child to you or, you know, at my level, like a pro and, you know, his wife or, you know, a pro and, the agent and the family, they're trusting their career, you know, with me. And, you know, these players are trusting their prospective careers, junior players with, you know, with us and keeping that in mind, it sort of just puts things in perspective and um, yeah, it just reminds you of what, you know, what you're taking on. All right. Well, Mark, it's been a pleasure and uh, we appreciate you taking the time. Like you said, you, you got a big qualifying match tomorrow and uh, maybe in the uh, post edit so i'll let everyone know how that new game plan went uh in acapulco so so no pressure for you oh <laughs> uh, thanks man that was a blast thank you good luck tomorrow and uh we'll be in touch thanks man all right i want to thank mark for joining us today he had a lot of cool stories and insights but i think one concept stands out that all players should be aware of when you play someone who's a little better than you their weaknesses tend to show up in pressure moments so have trust in your game plan, even if it's not working in the beginning of a match. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we can keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.